The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism, Abu Dhabi. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show, in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create, and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi, proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Urbanist. Monocle's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... We need to find ways of making sure that you aren't just providing homes or new homes for people who've been out of society in that way, but you're doing so in a way that reintegrates them back into community, makes them feel like they have a sense of belonging. Designing for the housing crisis takes many shapes and forms. So today, we wanted to focus on those working on building solutions for the unhoused. Having a place to call home is a basic human need. But despite that, homelessness continues to grow as a major issue in cities across the world. We'll explore a design ideas competition in the UK, the Davidson Prize, looking for solutions for those who have experienced housing insecurity. And we head over to Los Angeles to hear how new mayor, Karen Bass, is dealing with her city's homelessness crisis. That's all coming up over the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. Well, it's my pleasure today to be joined by Sadie Morgan. Sadie is the founding director of DRMM Architects, a co-founder of the Quality of Life Foundation, and among many more roles, a judge for this year's Davidson Prize. Sadie, thank you so much for taking time to come into the studio today to speak about your work. So let's start with the Davidson Prize and this year's theme, which is around homelessness. It's an issue that's close to your heart. When you were asked to be a judge for the competition, what appealed to you most about what was being covered? It appeals to my sentiment of caring and making sure that we as designers, architects, we are thinking about the world holistically. We're looking after everybody within our capacity, I suppose, to make change and transform people's lives. That's something that's been incredibly important to me. And I think that it is a big issue. Everybody should have a home. Nobody should be sleeping on the streets. Nobody should be sharing beds <laughs> if they're unless they want to. <laughs> and I think it's really unacceptable, actually, that we are still facing such a crisis. And And the Davidson Prize, it's a really interesting prize because it asks for multidisciplinary teams, which I think is really important. I think, you know, as architects and designers, we need to work with others in order to find good solutions. It also talks about how you make those propositions understandable to the kind of wider public. Again, something I think that is really important. It's no good having great ideas, but you have to be able to communicate them and explain to people the ways to make improvements 
moments or all the ideas that you're having. So I think those things really appeal to me. And on that multidisciplinary element, because I think sometimes when people see there's a, a design prize or an architecture prize connected to homelessness, they worry that it's detaching the, the debate away from fundamentals about employment, about poverty, about the structural things, which maybe a designer or an architect can't always face head on. So again, is that why the, the Davidson Prize is interesting? Because it's not saying, let's isolate this just as a, a solution that can be you know, plotted out on an architect's screen, whatever. Absolutely. And it actually plays into a lot of the things you talked about my other roles. I do a lot of roles where I work in organisations or on commissions, you know, with politicians, with economists, with policy makers. And I've begun, I've really understood the importance of bringing your design and creativity to that table. And that's really when you can help to unpick these types of issues. And you need policy change as well as good design. You need those conversations in the room and you need those perspectives in order to try to unpick these really big issues. And having a multidisciplinary team, I think, is absolutely essential and something that we all understand in terms of co-designing, co-authorship, collaboration, all of the words that we are looking to for a future that isn't just about star architects thinking that they have the answers because they don't. We don't. Let's just quickly look at some of the other roles that you have. You're one of the 10 commissioners for the National Infrastructure Commission. You're also a member of the Homes England Board, which is the UK government's housing accelerator. You have a role here with the Mayor of London. Just taking on all of those advisory roles, you have an architectural practice. How much time do you get to do architecture? And have you actually kind of outgrown just being an architect, become more an advisor and a big thinker on how we tackle issues of the home and how we should house people? Yeah, do you know that? Nobody said it outgrown. I think that's a really nice way of putting it. Thank you, I'm going to use that. I feel that I have, perhaps, I've been running a practice with Alex Dreyker, Philip Marsh for some time. We have three new fantastic directors. I think it's time to kind of let the next generation pick up the practice and move on. And as far as my skills... I'm as a late developer. I realised sort of later on that actually my creativity comes with a sort of three-dimensional brain and, and an ability to connect things together. So strategic thinking and joining the dots is, I think, where I add most value. And so being, as I alluded to before, at the table as a designer, as a creative, perhaps on tables that you wouldn't necessarily see somebody with my experience. So National Infrastructure Commission, it's unusual to have an architect in that particular role, but it's been incredibly positive. And, you know, we've been able to set up the design group. We've set up the young professionals practice. There's lots of things that come with adding a different perspective to a conversation that can often be fairly linear. Well, the practice is called DRMM, but we'll go back to your early life later, which is a fascinating one. But let's go back to the training that brought you here. You trained as an architect? I didn't. I trained in as an interior designer. And then I went to the Royal College and worked in the sort of multidisciplinary architecture interior design unit there. I've never actually qualified to be an architect, which I don't know, probably I've given up telling everybody, but much to the annoyance of my other two directors, (laughs) I've been given an honorary degree and a couple of doctorates. So I feel like (laughs) I can't sign off drawings, but I feel like I've been there and done it in terms of 
running an, an architectural practice. We've won the Sterling Prize. We're an incredible, I must give a plug, actually. We are a fantastic <laughs> architecture practice, caring very much about communities, sustainability and ethos that I suppose I've carried through my practice. When you say, you know, what taught me, I, I think it's been throughout my professional career, you know, in DRMM and Whenever you said, what's your favourite project? It's like, it's the practice, it's the people who work there, it's the ethos, it's the way that we encourage and gender support our team to do the best that they can. I'm an absolute believer that buildings reflect the people who make them. How important is that for somebody who runs a practice, who, who likes to think about architecture and design as you do, that it is something that is that's embracing, that is community-minded? Because people talk about it a lot, but actually, first of all, it's a lot of hard work often. Secondly, you get people on the fringes of the conversation who you you are going to have to shut out probably at some point. So it's not always a satisfying experience for the architect either. But tell me how you run that process and why it's important to you. It's incredibly important to me because I think unless you bring in those who are going to be involved living part of the buildings that you create, you cannot make sustainable communities. You cannot make your architecture live for a reasonable period of time, make it resilient, all of the things that we need to do in order that we don't keep knocking things down, rebuilding them. And, you know, this sort of sense of listening, I suppose, and looking after came probably from my upbringing. My grandfather started a a commune in the late 40s. I was brought up there as a child in a community of people. I didn't have a nuclear family. I had lots of different people kind of parenting me, looking after me. And I did the same. I looked after my great grandmother when, you know, I came home from school as a seven year old. She lived till she was 111. Oldest woman in Great Britain. No thanks to me, I have to say. (laughs) All my all my studious care, probably the Dubonnet that I used to give her every evening. But in all seriousness, my grandfather's a psychiatrist. He brought people in, patients of his would come and live with us in order to get ready to come back into society. And it's incredibly enriching because you, as a young person, you are open to seeing and understanding lots of different generations, lots of different people, lots of different experiences. You're not afraid of unusual or different people. And I think that that's incredibly important. And, you know, going back to the sort of those who are often made homeless, you know, people shun them in the street. You can often be a bit scared or anxious about being around people who are homeless. And it's not something that we can naturally relate to. And we need to find ways of making sure that you aren't just providing homes or new homes for people who've been out of society in that way, but you're doing so in a way that reintegrates them back into community, makes them feel like they have a sense of belonging, give them a sense of control, all of those things that we know are important. We'll rejoin our conversation with Sadie shortly, but staying on the topic of rough sleeping, Los Angeles' new mayor, Karen Bass, is trying to get a grip on the homelessness crisis that she inherited when she entered City Hall at the start of this year. Often people turn to quick-fix solutions, but our US editor, Chris Lord, went to see a couple of new developments that have a more long-term vision. So you've got nice high ceilings, don't yes. you? And that's your skylight up there? Yes. I'm in South Central Los Angeles, where I've been invited into the home of David Alston. 53 years old, he moved into Willowbrook Apartments in January from an overcrowded shelter in downtown LA. After long-running struggles with his mental health and time on the streets, David finally has a place to call his own. Once again, the 
the window where I can see the stars, the constellations, the sky. It's yeah. very airy and bright in here, isn't it? Yes, sir. Uh, it's a little bit too bright for my taste. Yeah. I'm going to get some window coverings and things of that sort to dim it down just a little bit. Come on in. So we've Sorry. just been joined by the architect, Michael Lira, who, of course, designed these spaces. Yeah. So you've got, you can do your review direct to the architect, David. Wonderful. He did a very good job. It's a sense of community coming laden with a home and office. And I think he did a wonderful job. LA-based architect Michael Lira completed Willowbrook Apartments late last year. Seven brightly coloured units with roof lines that harmonise with the neighbourhood around it and is built to last. LA's homelessness crisis continues to make headlines around the world. As many as 42,000 people can bed down on the streets of this city in a single night. Michael Lira Architects previously worked on so-called tiny home villages around LA, a temporary solution. But Willowbrook Apartments is no quick-fix urbanism. Residents can remain here as long as they need to. Michael gives me the tour. One of the grounding possibilities of this design is procession. How do you go from the street, from the most public place, to the most private place, which is your unit? So we created this bent path here really to extend the experience of arrival. Rather than being straight on the geometry of the narrow property, by skewing it, you're actually looking across it diagonally, and then, then there's a tree, and then, and these are really lessons, I would say, at least for me, from the Japanese garden. As an architect, I believe the way we move and what we see and what we focus on consciously or generally unconsciously informs the way we feel about a place. One of the great challenges here in California in terms of addressing the housing crisis that the state faces, there is a great deal of nimbyism. There's a fear of having things in the back garden. Does a project like this address that, do you think? I hope it does. I mean, the reason why architecture matters, if it's done right, is that you capture the imagination of the culture. You destigmatize these places and you destigmatize these populations. And you realize that the folks who live here are just like you and me and everybody else. We're all folks who need to be housed with dignity and respect. The least a place should be is benign in its neighborhood and do no harm. But ideally, it adds value. It's like, oh, what a nice place and what a good community I live in because our sisters and brothers who used to live on the street are now our neighbors. Even if we are middle class or upper middle class neighborhood, this is all part of what makes a, a complete community. So the role of architecture, the role of beauty, I mean, whether this is beautiful or not is for others to decide, but it's to capture people's imagination and have them think about this in an embracing, positive way. Now, what often happens is the prospect of a project like this, if the community knows about it, will almost certainly generate NIMBY responses. If you can get beyond that and get them built, those tend to disappear. Willowbrook sits at the intersection of a busy train route, and yet its genius is its location. In a city where land is scarce and at a premium, the houses sit on a strip of moribund infill land between two homes. A second iteration of the model will complete across town in Boyle Heights by the end of the year. John Perfit, Executive Director of Restore Neighbourhoods LA, is the developer behind Willowbrook. 
we place these into service at a very low cost point relative to a lot of the housing that gets built. So we think there's something compelling about that. We keep it very simple and bare bones, but as you can see, the product looks really good. It's a small site, scattered site, as we say. It doesn't appeal to a lot of market developers and traditional funding sources for affordable housing. And the developers that use those funding sources aren't necessarily interested in this. There's a lot of sort of infill properties that could take on units that could provide housing for the homeless, um, but oftentimes they're not utilized for that purpose. So we think it's an important direction to go to start to look at how can some of these uh, underutilized parcels could be put back into productive use as permanent supportive housing. I am 127 days into my administration. And I cannot declare that the state of our city is where it needs to be. Mayor of LA Karen Bass speaking in April during her first State of the City address. On her first day in office in January, Bass declared a state of emergency on homelessness, which has brought the city a tranche of additional funding to try to get more people off its streets and into housing. Leaning into the new direction we've charted for LA, my budget also includes an unprecedented $1.3 billion investment to accelerate our momentum on homelessness. Now, this is a record for the city of Los Angeles. During the pandemic, the state of California worked with local authorities to buy up old hotels and turn them into housing for the homeless. What is now known as Project Home Key has had mixed success, but there are still a large number of down-at-heel hotels and motels around LA that could be put to better use. In MacArthur Park, a rough and tumble corner of the city, the Alvarado has been given a new lease of life by Noreen Kadrabegovic, founder of Kadri Architects. There was active prostitution being run out of here. So, you know, you're taking something that was a hotbed of illegal activity and you're bringing it into the world with a new image and new hope for the neighborhood, uh, but also for the 43 families that are going to be housed here that are currently living on the street. For a bit of context for people who don't know LA, there is a reality here that the sort of flop house hotels, these very cheap hotels, are places where people are not quite homeless, but they also don't really have a home. They don't really have a place to go. They're sort of transitional in-between places that quite often people end up getting stuck in and then being very precarious because they can't stay. So you're trying to, if you like, turn what was one of those buildings into something a little bit more set up, transitional, and I guess with a sense of place to it. That's absolutely right. And I think in the process of of housing people, you bring about sort of a new energy into the city and by dint of that, enhance the neighborhood. And I don't know if you drove down the street, the place I was here before just sort of blended into the background. It was unnoticeable. And I think that the new message that the building brings, it actually makes you stop by and notice that there's a new energy in the neighborhood. I mean, what was here before was... I mean, it was one of the ugliest buildings I've ever seen. It, it had no architectural integrity. It had a, a fall Italianate facade, you know, run down, beaten down, unnoticeable, and didn't really bring anything to the, you know, to the city. Once we got the project, obviously the key is to house the people. But in the process of doing so, how can we enhance the, the neighborhood? And also, when the people come here, how can they feel welcome? How can they feel like they belong? Well, Noreen, I think you should take me around. Let's have a look inside. Yeah. Let's get to the top floor. The Alvarado has a personal dimension for Noreen. Born in Bosnia, he and his family were displaced in the conflicts of the 1990s and spent time living in a motel in Croatia 
before coming to the US. The Alvarado has been designated specifically for families living on the streets. So we really think about this hall, if you will, as a neighborhood street onto which all of the rooms open up. But what I love about the room is this door and the weight of this door. So when you come in, you really feel that weight. And so you feel like you're coming home. You feel like you're coming home. And then if you put yourself in the minds of a single mother with, let's say, two or three kids in tow, you've just been on the street and you shut that door, you feel that you're safe. And I think psychologically, that's a huge deal. I wonder now, looking ahead, whether you think there is a shift going on to more long-term thinking at the moment, where it's not just about quick fixes and getting people housed in the short term, it's about more long-term solutions and housing for people. Do you feel that that is the sort of next step of where this is heading and, and is urbanism, if you like, the answer to that? There's no panacea. I think that with the emergency shelters and all the other initiatives that we're working on and the permanent housing, that's a family of solutions that begins to mitigate the crisis. And eventually, of course, the answer is permanent housing. There is no question about that. But because of our regulatory framework, it's just not possible to create that much housing in such a short time. And that's why we resort to emergency shelters like the congregate shelters or the, or the tiny homes and Project Home Key, which is permanent housing or transitional housing uh, in a project like, like this one. Together, I think that you know, we're starting to gather critical mass of projects that it's buying us time until we can build all the permanent housing that's necessary. City of Los Angeles is not zoned to have enough housing units as the housing element dictates. So that's an inherent problem in density of the city. The state assembly has put forth a number of bills that increases density by right. And so that will, in fact, create momentum for developers to start creating more permanent housing units. And the incentives are actually tilted towards more affordable housing, which is key. The city planners are incredibly excited about these initiatives because that's what they want. They are on board and they are supportive and they're out there preaching this message of of density, because that's really the only way we can start solving the crisis. This morning in the LA Times, there was a story that said, they don't have the homelessness in Seoul that we have, but they have the same housing crisis. I wonder whether there are lessons that maybe other cities could take from what's, you know, you're an LA architect from Los Angeles' experiences of the housing crisis. This is a cautionary tale for sure. Uh, This is a, LA is a cautionary tale. And we got ourselves into this crisis. It's been 40 years in the making. Started with, you know, single-family zoning and and zoning rules that did not uh, encourage density, not in my backyard kind of kind of thinking. That is definitely a cautionary tale. 40 years in the making. It's going to take us a long time to get out of this, and other cities should take note. For Monocle in Los Angeles, I'm Chris Lord. Well, my thanks there to Chris in Los Angeles. I'm still with Sadie Morgan. Now, Sadie, you're also the co-founder of the Quality of Life Foundation, which is a topic that's close to our heart here at Monocle too. Can you tell us about how the foundation came about and a little bit more about what it actually does? So a couple of years ago, in the UK in particular, this sort of debate around the aesthetics came back up again. You know, should you live in a traditional home? Should you live in a more modern home? You know, and I was thinking, gosh, does it really matter? I mean, shoot me down because, you know, architects around the world were going, yes, it does. But I suppose what I was really interested in understanding was what's the bread and butter? What's the fundamental thing about our built environment that improves our quality of life? And so I went around lots of developers and said, you need to be, 
thinking about this and basically you need to give me some money and um, <laughs> which a number of them did uh, particularly the late Tony Pidgeley who was a huge supporter and uh, helped set up the foundation and we did a nationwide piece of research which asked those questions and came back with no surprises you know you need a sense of control a sense of belonging access to nature freedom of movement a sense of fun and wonder and a healthy home a framework with six kind of principles that really if you stick to you can help to improve your built environment and improve people's quality of life there are connecting themes that run through all this work because when you look at the work that your practice does it very proudly says from the beginning this is we're radical you know we yeah. you come to us because actually you've got a building a piece of land that probably you, you just don't know what to do with we will be able to kind of do a master plan do a piece of public realm think about how that could work when it comes to materials you're progressive you, you're for sustainability you're timber first you want to do things that are good for the environment and of course we now know that making buildings from timber for example is good for people's soul and their mental health the tactility there's something about being around timber so all of this links in do you still think of yourself as a, a radical practitioner when you turn up on these projects I suppose the answer is not now, but 10 years ago, one of our clients said the thing about you is that you're bleeding edge, which I think meant that you're so far ahead that you never make any money out of anything (laughs) you do, which is tragically, this seems to be the case. But I love the fact that all of the work and the research that we have done in the past is now coming to fruition. Obviously, we're not the only architects, you know, who are interested in these things. I suppose that the world is now sort of really picked up on the sustainability, climate issues, by diversity and so forth. But the social value piece, I think, is still, everyone talks about it, but nobody really understands what it is or how it's impactful or how to measure it. So one of the things that we do at the foundation is actually try to not make it such a transactional, you know, how do we capture the lived experience? And so, so this in, is also when buildings are finished, you would go back in, for oh, yes, example, do, yeah. and then go back and assess yeah. how they're functioning. And Absolutely. can you then encourage people to make tweaks after the completed building is standing there, say, look, I think you could add even more social benefit here, or you could make people feel even healthier or more secure in this space if you just nudge these last few things? It's more about going back after five or ten years and really learning. And then, you know, that is exactly what we do. One of the many things we do at the foundation is a lot of post-occupancy evaluation. So we go back and the idea is is that we have a huge amount of data that we can then share that allows developers, local authorities, residents to look at what works and what doesn't work. And I think going back to the point earlier that you made about talking to people, if you go in and you think, gosh, we have to add something extra, let's do an outdoor gym or something, you know, it's like, have you asked anybody? And, you know, there are so many sort of best intention bits of public realm that aren't useful or used because nobody's actually asked the communities. And one of the things the foundation does is go in right at the beginning and say, what is it about your local environment that improves your quality of life? And we have digital hotspots as to, you know, where there's great access to nature, where do you feel a sense of community and belonging and and so forth in order that you are able to make sure that you are adding to those, not taking them away, not building over them, but using that data to make it better and make it better over time. Now, here in the UK, when you go to speak to home builders, when you speak to architects, the solutions that are still being put forward, they're within an accepted range. If you went to the Netherlands, Germany, if you went to Switzerland, the idea of co-living, of shared spaces is so much further advanced. You might think of someone as Switzerland as being very kind of polished and wealthy, but actually 
there's a lot of communal living. Now, you've come from that experience. Are you surprised that that conversation hasn't taken off? It, it felt like it was beginning just before the pandemic. And now it's kind of, there are a few projects here and there. Are you surprised that we don't come up with more radical solutions or, or more progressive solutions about how we could potentially live together, share resources, and perhaps have a better sense of community? Again, good for our mental well-being as well. The answer is yes. I mean, I think that the UK has always been, I wouldn't say obsessed with owning one's own home, but, you know, kind of, you know. And, well, I and think we have been obsessed uh, with yeah, owning our own home, actually. Was, and then um, for myself, being brought up in the way that I was, I realised that actually, you know, you might look at it as radical. And you, as you say, quite rightly, in European countries, it's quite normal to be around your grandparents, to have help and support from others that aren't your nuclear family. And I think that that's something that's slightly broken down in the UK. And I am surprised because, you know, we are an ageing population. Our demographics are changing. And we can't just keep putting our elderly people in homes where they're isolated and not necessarily re-engaged in communities. And I tell you the story about my great-grandmother because she probably would have been in a home in any other circumstance because we all took turns in looking yeah. after her. We all took turns in feeding her and making sure that she was okay. It was a collective endeavour. And I think that that's something that if we can find ways of building a built environment that encourages that, I think that we will be societally better off. Now, the National Infrastructure Commission's mm. design group, yes. this is looking at the design qualities yeah. that are added to infrastructure. Yeah. Is that something that you feel is often overlooked? Yeah, I mean, the reason we started the design group at the National Infrastructure Commission is because we did some research about, you know, how do we add value? How do we ensure that our infrastructure is properly resilient, that it's fit for purpose, it's integrated into place? And one of the things that I've learned throughout my career is that actually there's some simple steps. You know, it's a bit like the quality of life framework. It's, you know, being practical. Here's some practical steps. Here's some ways that we can help you, not just tell you what to do. What is good design? What does it look like? What does that mean? And when it comes to our national infrastructure, we, again, put together a set of principles, so climate, people, place and value. And then we set out some practical ways of saying that everybody who's part of designing and delivering our national infrastructure has a responsibility of these things. And we set out ways in which everybody could help to encourage the thinking around those four themes. We made recommendations to government that all infrastructure of national significance should have a board level design champion. So somebody who's thinking about these things, design and sustainability at the highest level, and that all infrastructure of national significance should be subject to design review and refer to the principles and government accepted that. So that's what an incredible achievement in that people are now thinking about design when it comes to our infrastructure and we spend 1.2% of GDP on our infrastructure so it's important that we do it right we do it properly and we build it for the future and we build it in a way that will encourage sustainable living because you were involved in a, the independent design panel for high speed yes, too which right. is which yeah. is the, the high speed rail link here in the UK so it, are those the kinds of values you you wanted to see plugged into that project yes and in fact it's from that project that we've learned the importance of looking outside the red line making sure that you aren't just thinking about a high speed rail link you know as a railway but much more as a kind of integrated piece of infrastructure so how do you make sure that it's properly integrated into not just urban urban environments, but rural environments, going back to the need to making sure that you have design teams that have engineers, architects, landscape designers, water engineers, you know, in order that you are really thinking about the holistic 
impact of your infrastructure, but more importantly, that you're getting the best benefits that you can out of that investment. Now, not all of these projects, not all of these ideas are without contention. There's cost, there's differing opinions on, for example, on high-speed rail. Mm -hmm. There's different solutions that people want to homelessness. Some people don't think we're doing enough. We certainly aren't. Some people, when they look at housing, think that the, the central government could do much more. But in this role that you now find yourself, you seem to be working with partners at every level of government. Is there a point that you thought, okay, I understand there are challenges here, but if we're going to do these things, let's do them well? Yeah, I mean, I think exactly to your point. I remember being really challenged when I took the role on. I chair the Independent Design Panel for High Speed 2, so I work for the Secretary of State ultimately. And I was really challenged by a good friend of mine who didn't agree with High Speed 2 at all. And he said, how could you lend your credibility to this project, Sadie? And I said, look, regardless of what you think about it, whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, as a designer, as somebody from this industry, we have a responsibility to make sure that if it is built and it's going to be built, that it's done so in the absolute best possible way, as sustainably as possible, as integrated as possible, thinking about the communities, the people who are going to use it, all of those things. And that's the same with every role. I used to think everything could be transformed and you'd come in and it would be made better. And the truth is, the likelihood is you can make things incrementally better. But isn't that a good thing? And I'm absolutely driven. I'm absolutely driven. And I have a, you know, it sounds corny, but I... I have a deep-rooted sense of public service and I want to be able to use my skills and my passion and my interest to promote good design, the importance of it, and I'll do that anywhere that anyone will let me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's just end with two hopefully positive moments of change. One, you've been recognised as a, a really important female leader in the world of architecture. You've won awards for that. You're just an important person in the world of architecture, I'd like to say as well. But does that feel like a responsibility? And do you feel there is a moment of change? Because, you know, the architecture world is a bit like the building where things move at such a slow pace. And the way people rise up through the ranks, even when you make big changes, it's almost generational. But do you feel that the path is on a is a good one now? Oh, definitely. I mean, I you know, just in my sort of professional lifetime, we've seen real kind of movement, real change, real positive step forwards in looking at social values, sustainability, quality, all of those things. And any way that I can kind of help to promote that, I will do. And the answer is yes, I feel, I don't feel a weighted responsibility. I feel like a positive responsibility. I love a challenge. And I love being able to help and support others to create an environment that will, you know, last hopefully for generations and that my kids will look to and think, well, at least they didn't all mess it up. Some of them tried. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, for today, Sadie, just tell us, you know, these multiple hats that we talked about at the beginning of this discussion. And it feels like there's lots of positive things happening. But it's a difficult time. There's, you know, the, the economy is challenged. People have cost of living worries. Design decisions are being held up by the lack of equity in, in the market and things. But when you now stand back and survey what's happening, do you feel reasonably positive about what's happening in the built environment, in public realm, in beginning to challenge some of the, the kind of structural issues that we know have kind of dogged the UK? 
the answer is yes, I do feel positive. I think, you know, we're going to struggle. We're going to struggle for a few years yet. But I think when you are faced with struggle, it's true that you can be more innovative. We need to use our resources more carefully. We need to be more thoughtful about what we have. And I think when we have less in terms of design solutions, often that means that we are innovative and we think harder about using what we have already, not necessarily knocking everything down and rebuilding it. So I think we're creative and the UK is a, a net exporter of its design talent. And if we can keep it here and if we can encourage better cross-disciplinary working, collaboration and inventiveness, I think that we have a bright future. Sadie Morgan, thank you so much for joining us here on The Urbanist. Well, that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. For more from the world of urbanism, sign up to the podcast to get new episodes every week and subscribe to Monocle magazine. And you can do that at monocle.com. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Rabello and David Stevens. And David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, his cinematic orchestra with To Build a Home. Thank you for listening, City Lovers. I-